Now, please stay tuned for Forthright Radio. Welcome to this Forthright Radio for January 27th, 2023. I'm Joy LaClaire. It is with delight that I share with you an interview with George Monbiot to discuss his latest book, Regenesis, Feeding the World Without Devouring the Planet, published by Penguin Books. Since the 1980s, he has traveled the world doing on-the-ground investigations of how global dominant systems destroy crucial wildlife habitats and displace peoples from their ancestral homelands while contributing to catastrophic climate change. This has led to his being made persona non grata in seven countries, sentenced to life imprisonment in absentia in Indonesia, shot at, beaten up by military police, shipwrecked, stung into a coma by hornets, and pronounced clinically dead in Lodwar General Hospital in Kenya from cerebral malaria. He has informed us in delightful prose through the powerful lens of his political philosophy for social and ecological justice and sanity. George Monbiot, welcome back to Forthright Radio. Thanks for joining us again. Thank you, Joy. It's my pleasure. George, when you joined us in July of 2018 to discuss your book, Out of the Wreckage, A New Politics for an Age of Crisis, we began with referring to your Guardian article from December 31st, 2017, titled, How a Violent Land Seizure Story Led to My Quote-Unquote Death in Brazil, about news reports of your death while investigating the situation in Brazil in 1989. We had a bit of a laugh because you wrote in a humorous style reminiscent of Mark Twain. Since then, though, deaths of environmental journalists and activists have become all too numerous and all too real. On January 23rd, 2023, Brazilian authorities said they had identified a Colombian illegal fish trader and gang leader as the person suspected of orchestrating the murders of British journalist Dom Phillips and Brazilian indigenous advocate Bruno Pereira in June of 2022. So it seems fitting as we begin our conversation today to honor their memories, as well as the many other environmental defenders around the world who have devoted their lives to resisting the destruction of the biosphere, including the killing most recently in Atlanta, Georgia, of Manuel Esteban Pérez Tehran, reported in The Guardian with the headline, Assassinated in Cold Blood, Activist Killed Protesting Georgia's Cop City. George, your thoughts on this? It's been a rising horrible trend of environmental activists being murdered for trying to defend the land and its ecosystems for the benefit of all. These are deeply unselfish people who end up making the ultimate sacrifice while trying to defend common goods. And this has become a particularly huge issue in countries like the Philippines and Mexico, quite a few South American countries, but there have been killings in many other nations as well. And it just shows the extraordinary bravery and unselfishness of people who every day put their lives on the line to defend something bigger than themselves. I stand in awe of people who make those daily decisions and have no place to run. I was threatened, I was, I was nearly killed, but at least I had somewhere else to go. 
I had an escape hatch because I came from the United Kingdom. But the people whose deaths we hear of so often, most of them have no such place to run to. Let's get to your most recent book, Regenesis, Feeding the World Without Devouring the Planet. You begin with a chapter titled, What Lies Beneath? I was especially pleased with this because one of the turning points in my life was reading an essay 40 years ago or so in Rodale's organic gardening book titled, Soil is More Precious Than Gold. That was in the late 1970s, and our knowledge of soil was rudimentary then compared with what we're beginning to understand now, and which you focus on in Regenesis. Please share with our listeners what our understanding of healthy soil now includes. Well, the first thing to say is that soil is still almost a black box to us. It's remarkable how little we know about it and how little we still understand. I mean, this is the ecosystem from which we receive 99% of our calories. You would think that we would accord it a certain amount of importance and put some resources into researching it. But while we're spending billions of dollars on the Mars rover program to characterize the surface of that planet, we're spending almost nothing on understanding better the surface of our own. There was a paper published in 2020 which said we think we might know what soil is now. (laughs) Can you imagine? And actually, even since that paper, it's like, hmm, maybe we're not so sure now because it's got such bizarre properties that we don't see in any other ecosystem. So even the term ecosystem is slightly shocking to some people. Soil, an ecosystem, surely it's just stuff. Well, it is not just an ecosystem, but it's actually a biological structure like a coral reef. There would be no soil at all if it weren't for the organisms living in it, from bacteria up to earth worms. They're what create it and give it its structure. And without that structure, it would simply be swept straight off the land by wind or by rain. That's the only thing that keeps it there. So at the smallest level, the bacteria in the soil use the organic carbon as cement for sticking together the little particles and making the tiny capsules in which they live, which have almost magical properties. They remain at 98% humidity, even when soil is air dried. And then you've got the tiny little scuttling creatures, the microarthropods, who turn those bacterial clusters into little clusters of their own, slightly bigger ones, in which they can live. And then the giants of the soil, like ants and worms, they turn those into bigger clusters still. And soil is fractally scaled, which means that it has the same structure at any level of magnification. That's one of the things which gives it its tremendous structural resilience. But it's also this really weird and fascinating ecosystem. So, for instance, one of the new findings is that the entire microbial genome shrinks or expands according to the amount of carbon in the soil. And it's as if it's coordinated. And weirder still, while the overall DNA length uh, among the microbes shrinks as carbon is reduced the number of RNA operons rises at the same time, which suggests a collective metabolic response. And there's something really weird going on there. And we haven't got our heads around it. But you could almost look at this system and think, oh my gosh, the whole thing's alive. I mean, it feels like it. It feels almost like a living field. I'm glad you put it that way, because we will eventually be getting to the politics of your book. And one of the ideologies in the Western world is this 
concept of the individual, the lone entity. And what is shown at every level of biology is there's just no such thing. Mm, That's so true. It's all communities of different sorts. Would you like to expand on that? Yeah, thank you. I'm very glad you asked me that because, yes, the more we know, the more we recognize these extraordinarily intricate connections between life forms, which previous generations scarcely even guessed at. So a classic example is what happens when a root hair breaks into a new little clump of soil. As the plant is growing, it puts out these root hairs and they're constantly spreading out into the soil. And when it does so, the root hair does something very weird. It starts to speak. And this is one of the really exciting findings of the last few years, which is that plants can talk. And they talk in a highly sophisticated, very nuanced chemical language. They produce these tremendously sophisticated chemicals whose purpose is to call out to just one species, very often, of bacteria. Now, there might be thousands of species of bacteria in in a lump of soil, But they'd want to wake up just one of them. Most of these bacteria exist in a state of dormancy most of the time. And the plant sends out this signal, this special signal, which only the species it wants to talk to can hear and says, wake up. And that species wakes up and then the plant floods it with sugar. And here's the amazing thing that between 11% and 40% of all the sugars plants make through photosynthesis are released into the soil. And their purpose is to feed the microorganisms, mostly bacteria and fungi, on which they depend. Now, there's several things going on here. Plants can't scour the minerals they need directly from the soil. They need bacteria or fungi to help them collect those minerals. And in return, they feed them with sugars. And as a result of these enormous releases of sugar from the roots, around every root hair, you get a really dense bacterial community, some of the densest in the world, huge numbers of bacteria surrounding that little root hair in the very thin zone of soil we call the rhizosphere. And so what's partly happening is that the bacteria and the fungi are exchanging minerals for sugars, but they also create a defensive ring around the root hair and fight off any pathogens which might attack the root. And they do something else as well. Even if the plant is being attacked above the ground by caterpillars or by aphids, for instance, it'll send a signal down into the roots to the bacteria in the rhizosphere and the bacteria will bounce that signal back and stimulate the plant's immune system to help it fight off those aphids or caterpillars. Now that seems like a very clunky and roundabout way of doing it but that's the evolutionary pathway. They can't do it a different way. Now when you think of those three things, trading nutrients for sugars, to creating a defensive ring around an organ of the plant, the root hair, and at the same time stimulating the plant's immune system, you can't help being reminded of something. You think, I've, I've heard this story somewhere before. And then it suddenly hits you. Oh my gosh, it's the human gut. Exactly the same thing happens there. You've got this very dense community of bacteria. They exchange nutrients for sugars and they create a defensive ring fighting off pathogens and they bounce back signals to stimulate your immune system. And then you realize something even more extraordinary, which is that out of the thousand or so phyla of bacteria, the major groups of bacteria, there are four which dominate the human gut. And there are also four which dominate the rhizosphere. And they are the same four. 
So what you conclude from this is that the rhizosphere, though it lies outside the plant, is basically the plant's gut. It's the plant's external gut. I just want to point out to listeners who may think that it's preposterous that any entities communicate in a chemical language. We know that there are definitely complex organisms, bees, etc., who do. We know about pheromones. But even we humans, when we smell or taste, that information is a chemical information that goes to our brains, and we interpret it more or less as a language. George, you talk about complex systems and distinguish them from complicated, and this is important to understand the rest of the thesis of your book, that we really are dealing with systems here at the human level we're talking about now, and particularly where agriculture is concerned. Actually, where almost everything important is concerned, almost everything important to us, whether it's the human brain, the human body, human society, ecosystems, the atmosphere, the oceans, the soil, of course, the financial system, the global food system, all of these are complex systems. But scarcely any of us are taught about complex systems at school. And if we are taught about them, we're taught in a completely misleading way with a circuit diagram showing what's basically a simple system like a plumbing diagram or an electricity circuit, which is a totally different thing and behaves in completely different ways. Or they get confused with complicated systems like a car engine, which might have lots of parts all doing their different things, but acts in a predictable and staged way. Whereas a complex system, oh, so it's such a fascinating thing. And amazingly, even though you get these completely different things, which are complex systems, they all operate on the same fundamental principles, whether it's a global financial network or it's the soil, they have the same basic principles driving them. You've got in any complex system billions of interactions which cumulatively are operating randomly and yet create patterns and they create patterns of self-regulation. They have this extraordinary capacity which comes about just as a property of the extraordinary number of interactions of uh, basically sustaining an equilibrium state. So any shocks which hit that system are damped down by those self-regulating properties so that it maintains itself. It sort of looks after itself. You could almost mistake it as a form of intelligent life, even when the complex system in question is the global financial system, which plainly is not remotely intelligent life. But anyway, they do things which no one could ever design and no one could ever anticipate because they have their own dynamic caused by their own self-regulation. But if they're pushed beyond a certain level of stress, then that self-regulation turns into self-amplification. And any shock that hits the system, instead of being damped down, is exacerbated and ramped up. And as the system degrades more and more, those shocks hit it harder and harder. And even then, a relatively small shock can throw it right out of its equilibrium state. And it gets more and more variable with, with greater and greater fluctuations until it hits a tipping point. And then it suddenly and unstoppably collapses into a completely different equilibrium state. And that is common to all complex systems. When the soil does it, we call it a dust bowl. You can degrade and degrade and degrade the soil by 
poor farming practices and you don't really notice very much at first. It's still producing crops, maybe not not quite so well. And then it'll be hit by a relatively small shock by comparison to some of the things it might have withstood before, like a drought, and it'll suddenly just collapse. Boom, gone. And then it blows away. It just disappears completely. That's a collapsed complex system. We saw something very similar with the global financial system in 2008, a relatively small shock by comparison to the size of the system and the size of previous shocks. The US subprime mortgage crisis pushed it very close to collapse and it required a bailout worldwide of trillions of dollars to prevent that collapse and push it back into a safer equilibrium state. But basically exactly the same process of degradation leading to self-amplification had driven the financial system to that point. And to understand anything important in the world, whether it's the soil, whether it's the food system itself, we have to try to understand complex systems and understand the principles on which they operate. We're speaking with George Monbiot. His latest book is Regenesis, Feeding the World Without Devouring the Planet. And it tries to do exactly what he just said, to examine the world food system, where it is now, where it's heading, and how to head it off at the pass before it flips into a completely different system that wouldn't be so good for us. George, you you talk about two things, the global standard farm that we now currently have globally and the global standard diet. Yeah, so these are self-reinforcing trends where we've seen over the past generation or two a remarkable convergence in what we eat. Locally, our diets are more diverse, but globally, they're less diverse. So in other words, if you go down to the supermarket, you might find loads of different foods that you can buy, but they'll be almost exactly the same foods that someone of your same income bracket on the other side of the world could buy. And rather than having these very locally distinctive cuisines that we had a few decades ago, we have this more or less single global cuisine, this global standard diet, which isn't in all respects a bad diet, and it can be nutritionally superior to what people ate before. But it's very vulnerable because of its standardization to global shocks. And this diet is produced by the global standard farm and reinforced by the global standard farm which uses the same seeds and the same farm chemicals and the same farm machinery and the same techniques to grow the same products more or less all over the world. And this introduces yet more vulnerabilities into the system, particularly as those seeds and chemicals and machinery and indeed even the techniques are pretty well controlled by a handful of large corporations. One of the aspects, at least in the West, is that of speculation. You write that 65 to 215 times as much wheat is traded in Chicago's future exchanges than is actually harvested. So there's a whole level of middle people making fantasy money in the process. So there's a lot of vested interests in maintaining the system the way it is now. But you call for what you call a techno-ethical shift. Talk about what you mean by that term, techno-ethical shift. 
There have been some interesting examples of techno-ethical shifts in history. A classic one is the more or less simultaneous development of the printing press in Europe and the replacement of parchment with paper. What happened there was that these technological shifts really lifted the lid on political and religious revolution. There'd been a latent desire for change amongst people for centuries in many cases, wanting a different political settlement, wanting different forms of religious observance. But it really took that new technology to turn that latent desire into actual desire and to stimulate huge movements like the Reformation. Similarly, with modern contraceptive technologies, they greatly accelerated the cause of women's liberation. Obviously, there's still a very long way to go, but I don't think anyone would deny that they gave it a major boost. So what we saw in both cases is a technology opening up the space for political change. A lot of your book is describing where we are now with the standard farm and what you call for a counter-agricultural revolution. I think people have a romanticized idea of what farms are, but you assert that they're actually one of the most devastating environmental destroyers on the planet. So share with our listeners a bit about that, why you say that. I mean, it's a very hard thing to face, isn't it? Because farming is so much a part of our identity and we all depend on it. We would all starve without it. But the tough truth is that it's also the worst thing we've ever done to the planet. It's by far and away the biggest cause of deforestation, of habitat destruction, of wildlife loss, of species extinction, of soil depletion, of freshwater use, perhaps most importantly of all, of land use. And it's also a very major source of greenhouse gases, of water pollution and of air pollution. And a lot of the time, what farming does is almost given a free pass. If other industries did what farming does, particularly in the form of this massive amount of habitat destruction and all the predator killing and all this spraying of poisons and the rest of it, we would be absolutely horrified and we would lobby against it furiously. But because it's farming, we stand back and say, oh, well, can't touch farming. That's nothing to do with us. It's almost like there's a no trespassing sign in front of the industry. It's not just that you can't walk on the land. You can't talk about it either. Well, you talk about it. So we are now. While we're talking about it at that level, talk about what you say is a root metaphor, the pastoral myth. This concept of a root metaphor is explained beautifully by Jeremy Lent in his book, The Patterning Instinct, which incidentally is a truly brilliant book, which everyone should read. And he talks about a root metaphor as being an idea so deeply embedded in our lives that we don't even recognize it as an idea. We just accept it as part of the warp and weft of our lives. And though he doesn't discuss this one, I I think there's an idea which qualifies as a root metaphor, which is the pastoral myth which is the notion that herding livestock, cattle or sheep mostly, is the seat of innocence and purity, whereas the city is the cauldron of corruption and evil. And this is an idea which has a very strong secular tradition, going back to the Greek poet Theocritus in the 3rd century BC, and a very strong religious tradition as well. The Old Testament is full of it. I mean, right from the beginning, Cain, the tiller of the earth, kills Abel, God's beloved, who was the herder of beasts. And as Nahum says, woe to the bloody city, it is all lies and, and corruption, the prey departeth not. And you have these sort of twin themes of the city being evil, 
and the pastoral life being good and looking back to the time when Abraham's flocks darkened the land. And then the secular tradition was picked up in particular by Virgil, who moved the action from Theocritus's native Sicily to Arcadia in Greece, both a real place and a fantasy place. And then these two traditions converged to a remarkable degree in, in the New Testament. I mean, Virgil's fourth o'clock, almost as some people see him as a prophet, because he talks about this golden boy who will come down to earth and make the lion li lie down with the lamb. And so these traditions really fuse in the New Testament, where Jesus is both the good shepherd and Agnes Dei, the Lamb of God. And his disciples were sent out to be pastors, in other words, shepherds. And we still use that Latin word for shepherd, pastor, to denote a priest. And then it gets picked up again big time in Renaissance Europe with poets like Dante and, and Petrarch and Boccaccio, and then moves to England with Marlowe and Spencer and Mary Herbert and Shakespeare and others, picking up this theme and then it had a big play in North America as well, where the Western and the whole myth of the cowboy is really a version of that pastoral myth. And the, the cowboy alone with the herds leading this pure and rugged life and sleeping under the stars and telling stories and playing music. This is uh, very strongly resonates with themes going all the way back to Theocritus. And of course, there was a whole host of ills which is, is covered over by that story. But these deep myths then become very hard to dislodge. They become embedded in our lives so that we come to see this most destructive of all industries, which is herding livestock. In, in fact, in terms of its ratio of destruction to production, it's, it's possibly the worst industry on earth because of the huge amount of land it requires, the massive ecological opportunity cost and the massive carbon opportunity cost of occupying that land. We see it instead as a benign industry. And in fact, there's all sorts of modern myths which are just as spurious as the old ones, like pasture land sequesters carbon. It's just completely untrue. I looked into this in great detail. There's no evidence whatsoever, but millions of people believe it. These myths really resonate with those root metaphors and that long-standing millennial pastoral tradition. Of course, our listeners for years now have been hearing about the destruction of the Amazonian rainforest to either support cattle or soy production to feed cattle. George Monbiot, you have some very interesting statistics here. Land seizures, seven, more than 70% of global farmlands are owned by 1% of farmers. And this blew me away. The human population is increasing by 1.05% per year. Livestock is increasing by 2.4% per year. So that's more than twice as much as the humans. And that by 2050, humans will account for 100 million tons of biomass on the planet. Farm animals will account for 400 million tons. That certainly isn't something that one hears every day. And that's extra tons, Joy, on top of what is already there. It's quite extraordinary. So if we look at mammals, for example, if we look at the weight of mammals on Earth, only 4% of mammals are wild. 36% are humans, 60% are livestock. If we look at birds, 29% of birds are wild and all the rest are poultry, the great majority of them chickens. 
It's extraordinary. And unless we disrupt this trend, which is the most dangerous of all environmental trends, because it is livestock that are consuming the planet, you know, this is, as you say, the real population crisis, those ratios will get even worse. I mean, there'll be no space left for wildlife and for wild ecosystems. And so there are two things above all others we need to do to protect and restore the living planet. One is to leave fossil fuels in the ground. The other is to stop farming animals. That's going to be hard for some of our listeners to take, especially in Montana, because there's a very dominant political force and cultural force in the western states with grazing and ranching, and many of the ranchers are very sincere, quote-unquote, stewards of the land. And they really believe that. And there is some evidence to support that thesis. But let's get into the way you analyze it, which is in terms of agricultural sprawl and calories per acre and that sort of thing. Would you share with our listeners that aspect? Thanks, Joy. Well, I think this is a crucial aspect which is overlooked by almost everyone, even by environmentalists. Every acre of land that we use for our own purposes is an acre that can't be occupied by wild ecosystems, be they forests, be they natural grasslands, be they savannas, be they wetlands. And so every acre we use has an ecological opportunity cost, which is the cost of what would otherwise have been there. But it also has a very major carbon opportunity cost because in all cases, the wild ecosystems contain more carbon than the farm systems or ranch systems that replace them. Even when it comes to pasture, if you have a natural grassland which isn't being used for cattle, for example, it will almost invariably sequester more carbon than one which is being used. And, and this is completely contrary to the myths put about, by often by very well-meaning people, but that simply do not stand up to scientific scrutiny. So what is the biggest use of land on Earth? Well, a lot of people complain about urban sprawl, and they're quite right to complain about urban sprawl because it is a blight on the planet. Cities should be compact. It's good for cities and it's good for the countryside if they're compact. But the entire urban area, all the homes, all the businesses, all the infrastructure on Earth occupies just 1% of the land surface. Farming, by contrast, occupies 38% of the land surface. And nearly all the other land is ice cap, desert, mountains, forest, and not, not nearly enough because the load has been destroyed, and protected areas, not nearly enough protected areas. And so farming occupies pretty well all the land it can occupy. So let's break this down further. What's that 38% of the global land surface com composed of? Well, 12% is crops. But of that 12%, almost half is producing crops for animals to eat, for livestock to eat, rather than for human beings. But what about the remaining 26%? Well, this is by far and away the biggest human land use, and it's entirely pasture, mostly for cattle and sheep. And yet that pasture produces just a tiny proportion of our food. But in order to produce that food, we need to occupy this vast amount of land, which would otherwise be occupied by wild ecosystems on which the great majority of wildlife depends, and indeed on which Earth systems themselves, our very survival, depends. And this is why arguably the greatest threat of all to Earth systems is animal farming. Not so much because of the animals crammed into giant steel factories, which is where incidentally the great majority of our animal products come from, 
But actually, those animals whose production we fetishize, the ones out on the ranches, because of their enormous ecological and opportunity costs, they are the industry that threatens Earth systems more than any other. And that's a very hard thing for most people to swallow. People are highly resistant to hearing that and get really, really angry. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't face that hard truth. You spend much of your book visiting different types of agriculture, mostly in the UK. You visit Tolly Tolhurst, and he's doing what he calls stock-free organic farming. Then you also visit Tim Ashton, and he, I would like to focus more on him because he sees himself as a farmer scientist, along with Simon Jeffrey, who is a soil ecologist, and Paul Kaywood, an agronomist. They're doing a form of no-till farming. Let's talk about their situation. No-till, of course, is far more familiar in North America than it is in the UK and Europe, where it's quite an unfamiliar technology. But the particular form of no-till, which Tim Ashton, with the help of his advisors, is doing, is especially sophisticated and does seem to have some very effective soil-conserving properties and is plainly producing better and more sustained yields for him than the tillage that it has replaced. It's not the perfect solution that many people would like to believe. It doesn't seem to sequester any more carbon than ploughing does, but it does protect soil structure, and that is critically important these days. There is the issue of having to use Roundup, which definitely has ecological effects, because if you're not ploughing the weeds and the crop residues, you, you, you do have to spray them off. And so I think that we could see a situation where that's replaced with robotic weeders, which would have a far more beneficial ecological impact, especially the ones, for instance, which zapped weeds with electric bolts. But they're expensive, and so they will favour capital over labour, as a lot of modern equipment does, making life harder for small farmers. So in all these cases, there are trade-offs. There's no single simple solution which is going to fix everything. Though when it comes to producing grain crops, actually, I think that there is one which takes us at least some of the way towards where we want to be, which is perennial grain And I think perhaps in arable agriculture, this is the most exciting of all new approaches. And it's being pioneered by the Land Institute based in Salina, Kansas. Would you just briefly explain what you mean by arable agriculture? Arable agriculture is what you in the US would call row crops. It's ploughing on or no-till to produce crops. It basically just means field agriculture. But the really important thing, I think, with perennial grain crops is that it enables us potentially to greatly reduce the amount of damage we do in growing those crops. So almost all the grain we grow is produced by annual plants, in other words, plants which live and die within the course of one year. Now, large areas covered by annual plants are rare in nature, and they generally only occur in the wake of an ecological disaster, such as a landslide or a volcanic eruption or a major wildfire, which kills off all the long-lasting, the perennial plants which were there before. And annual plants are specialists in colonising bare ground. They will spread very quickly into that open space. 
and then they'll reproduce fast and they'll hold on to the space for maybe a couple of years and then the perennial plants move back in and swallow up the space and the annuals die away. In other words, in order to produce our annual crops, we have to create an ecological disaster every year. And we do so either by ploughing the ground or by spraying it to destroy all the competition, which would otherwise crowd out the annual plants that we want to grow. And that does enormous damage either to the soil or to other wildlife, the the weeds, the insects. It has enormous downstream impacts with all the pesticides and the herbicides that we're applying And we could greatly reduce those impacts if we were able to switch from annual to perennial crops to crops that stay in the ground for several years at a time. Because in growing these annual plants, you have to really pamper the seedlings during their growth phase. You have to protect them from pests. You have to protect them from competition with other plants. And then you bring them to fruition pretty quickly, then you cut them down, and then you kill everything again, either by ploughing or by spraying the land. And this cycle has more and more damaging impacts the longer it goes on. So the Land Institute in Salina has done some really exciting work in finding potential varieties which could replace the annual crops we grow. And with the help of Yunnan University in China, it has developed and fully commercialized now a perennial variety of rice, which it developed by crossing annual rice with a wild species. And this rice has the same yield as annual rice, and yet it can stay in the ground for several years at a time, continuing to produce those same yields. This greatly reduces the erosion rate in rice paddies in China, which are very susceptible to erosion. But I think the main reason farmers are so keen to get hold of it is it also greatly reduces labour requirements and labour's in very short supply in rural China now because the young people have gone to the cities. But it's got a whole load of other plants in the pipeline, wheat and sunflowers and other cereal crops, which are in development and probably not far from commercialisation. George Monbiot, you're you're very well known as a defender of the environmental world, and I'm sure our listeners have images of you out there in the woods and looking through the soil with your hand lens and all this kind of stuff. Yet, one of the most interesting and radical parts of your book, at least to me, is talking about the promise of precision fermentation. Why don't you tell us about precision fermentation? Yes. So it does seem a bit weird for someone like me, who's yeah, so much an outdoor person and so interested in outdoor ecosystems, to be promoting this weird way of producing food in factories, well, in giant breweries, really. But I do see it as being potentially the technology with the greatest possibility of reducing our environmental impacts. For the last few thousand years, we've been breeding and developing multicellular organisms, plants and animals, to produce our food. We've also, to some extent, been breeding single-celled organisms like yeast and bacteria to help us produce that food, to make our bread and to make beer and yogurt and cheese and the rest of it. But we haven't really focused on those single cells. And it turns out that we can produce food from single-celled creatures much more efficiently 
than the food we produce from multicellular ones, particularly from livestock. And so I went, for instance, to a laboratory in Helsinki in Finland to um, meet a company called Solar Foods that are producing food from hydrogen because they're cultivating a hydrogen oxygenating bacterium found in the soil. Hydrogen is what it eats, <laughs> along with carbon dioxide and water and a very small amount of fertilizer. And it produces this golden-colored flour, which is about 65% protein. And in terms of protein production, it radically shrinks our environmental footprint. If you were to produce that same amount of protein from soya, you'd need 1,700 times as much land. If you were to produce the same amount of protein from beef, you'd need 168,000 times as much land. So you're talking about far less land use, far less water use, far less fertilizer use, and not really using anything else. And it's a closed loop, so you're not spilling anything out into the wider environment. And in terms of what you do with it, well... You've got this very protein-rich flour, which can be turned into just about anything, really. I was the first person outside the lab, the first person on Earth outside the lab, to eat a pancake made from this bacterial flour, small flip for man. And amazingly, <laughs> it tasted just like a pancake. It really was exactly like a, a normal European or American pancake. And it tasted really good. But that's just the beginning. You can use this to make far more realistic substitutes for meat with much less processing than a lot of the plant-based substitutes. But it also could be the basis of a whole new cuisine, producing things we haven't even thought of, just as the first people to capture a wild cow weren't thinking about camembert, right? I think it has this potentially massive transformative appeal. And, and there's two reasons for this. First of all, that if we were to replace livestock with microorganisms, we could release vast tracts of the planet from our impacts. We could rewild land on an enormous scale. And in doing so, we could restore ecosystems. We could stop the sixth great extinction in its tracks. And we could draw down much of the carbon dioxide we've already released into the atmosphere. But it also has this second remarkable effect, which is that it enables people to produce food anywhere on Earth. Now, there are many countries on Earth today which don't have enough fertile land or water to produce their own food and are highly dependent on exports from countries thousands of miles away. And that dependency makes them extremely vulnerable, especially because the complex system we call the global food system is in big, big trouble and could hit a tipping point. They could just find themselves deprived of a food supply altogether. But the great thing about this technology is it can be completely distributed. Every town could have its own microbrewery producing protein-rich foods tailored to local markets, and it could cut itself off completely from those disastrous global trade networks which are so dominated by big corporations. Now, of course, there's a danger that this new technology could also be dominated by global corporations. And this is why you and I and everyone listening to this needs to get involved now rather than just saying, oh, well, let's just wait and see how it pans out because how it'll pan out is just like the rest of the food industry it'll be concentrated for instance at the moment four corporations control 90 percent of the global grain trade which is incredibly dangerous it's a horrendous situation but the answer is not to ban the global grain trade because if you did that billions of people would die very quickly it's to break up the corporations 
And we must address this in the old food economy just as we must in the new food economy and prevent this amazing gift to humanity from being captured by a few big companies. And for that to happen, antitrust laws must be strong and intellectual property rights must be weak. And for that to happen in turn, we need to get political and we need to get involved in these questions right from the outset. That's very nice in theory, and some are trying to do that, and particularly around climate change, scientists' rebellion. Well, Extinction Rebellion is the original one of which Scientists' Rebellion is a part. And you actually wrote an article about, do we really care more about Van Gogh's sunflowers than real ones? The pushback, both by government and media, against those who are information-based and committed, such as Extinction Rebellion and Scientist Rebellion, so far appears to be very successful an example of which are subsidies. And you do go into how subsidies are doing exactly the opposite of what is needed. Could you use that as an example of a problem? Thank you. Yes. So worldwide, we're spending about $500 billion a year on farm subsidies, half a trillion dollars. And almost all that is misspent. It goes to the biggest, richest landowners, many of whom aren't even farmers, are absentees, and it nearly always drives destructive policy. There's almost no subsidies on earth which are environmentally beneficial. And in many cases, far from lowering the cost of food, they actually raise it. So everything is wrong with that system. And yet, we could use that 500 billion to do something really good. We could pay farmers on very poor land, unproductive land, to stop farming and to rewild it instead. We could pay livestock farmers to get out of livestock farming and do basically nature farming instead, which would be of great benefit to them and to the living world. We could subsidize fruit and vegetables at the point of sale because we should all be eating more fruit and vegetables, but large numbers of people just can't afford them. And it'd be a far more efficient use of that money to subsidize their sales when those fruit and vegetables are bought, which would boost the market for farmers, but cost people less than they would otherwise be paying. So there's just much better ways of using that same amount of money. George Monbiot, earlier in the discussion, you were talking about complex systems and tipping points. In the short time that we know we have before climate systems just go beyond predictable tipping points, and some say they sometimes already have, do you feel that that is what it will take to create a new system that allows for what you just described in terms of more sensible allocation of subsidies and that sort of thing. Society is also a complex system, and we should never forget that because society also has tipping points. It has an equilibrium state, which can be a disastrous one, which I think basically we're in at the moment. But we can change that and we can change that more easily than people might think. There's been quite a lot of scientific research to look at where that tipping point is. And it's basically about 25 percent. If 25 percent of the population is committed to a new position, then the rest of society will shift to meet them. And that's partly because of the internal dynamics of the complex system called society and its tipping points. But it's partly also because we are the supremely social mammal and we don't want to be left behind. And if we sense that the wind has changed, we tack round to catch that wind. 
So you don't have to convince your grumpy brother-in-law. You don't have to convince the person in the opposite corner. You just have to convince 25% of people. And if you can get a quarter of the population to join you in creating a new system, that new system will happen. That is how change has happened throughout history. And we can make change in the same way today. Is there a question that you wish you were asked that you are never asked? That's a nice question. Let's have a think about that. What would I ask myself? I think the question is what I would tell myself if I were looking back to when I was 18 or so, what would I now say to that 18 year old? I think that's the question I would ask. What do you think you would tell yourself? I think I would say, look, everyone else thinks you're a weirdo and you are, but that isn't a bad thing. The word weird comes from the old English word weird, where W-Y-R-D, which means destiny. And I think the weird are destined to change the world because it's only the people who are a bit off beam and come at it from a new angle and see the world in different ways who can really make change. And if you look at who some of the most inspiring leaders have been, they're people who are all just a bit different. And we think of Greta Thunberg, for instance, you know, who's, who's been such an incredible mover and inspirer of change and has not only changed the global conversation on climate breakdown, but also the global conversation on neurodiversity, all while she's still in her teens. Oh, as well as taking down the world's most toxic misogynist. And you sort of realise that that is a power. What other people might see as strangeness is a power which shouldn't be a stigma. And and I felt stigmatized by thinking differently, by seeing the world differently, by having a different approach when I was a teenager. And I would say to my younger self, don't worry about it. It's good. It's great. Stick with that weirdness because it will take you to interesting places. And do you think your younger self would have listened no, I wasn't listening to anyone, let alone to some old fart like I <laughs> Some guy who's really weird. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, who the hell are you, Granddad? I mean, the, the lovely thing is we can all change. And it's something we should never, never forget that we have this enormous capacity not to be the person we are right, right now. And, and that should give us hope. If you don't like who you are, it's all right. You can change. George Monbiot, thank you very much for joining us again on Forthright Radio and for your many decades of investigation and thinking and then writing it so it's fun to read. That's a very special gift. Thank you so much, Joy. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. You have just heard an interview with investigative journalist and author George Monbiot discussing his latest book, Regenesis, Feeding the World Without Devouring the Planet, published by Penguin Books. In preparing for it, I read many of his archived articles from The Guardian, and in one from November 24, 2022, titled Embrace What May Be the Most Important Green Technology Ever, It Could Save Us All, he reports on precision fermentation, which he touched on in our interview, and he writes, quote, I've given my support to a new campaign called Reboot Food, end quote. I went to their website, rebootfoods.org, and found this video, the audio from which I share with you now. It's the most important environmental technology on Earth today. Is it solar panels, wind turbines? No, it's precision fermentation. Precision what? Well, this is a refined form of brewing, 
and we can use it to produce all the protein and fat we need. The protein and fat we now get from animal farming, from soybeans, from palm oil and the rest, but with a tiny fraction of the land footprint, a tiny fraction of the water footprint, the energy footprint, the nutrient footprint, all the rest of it absolutely minimized. And what we do is to brew bacteria in vats and they produce our protein and fat. Bacteria, I don't want to eat bacteria. I hear this all the time and it sounds horrific, doesn't it? But let's imagine it was the other way around. Let's imagine we were already doing that and that's where our protein and fat came from. And someone like me came along and said, I've got a better idea. Let's eat animals instead. Ugh, animals? Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's great. Listen, we, we just have to domesticate a few. I mean, I've got some great candidates. There's a wild cow, a wild boar, a wild sheep, a wild goat, a wild jungle fowl. You know, we domesticate them. We, we breed them to radically alter their characteristics. And then you can absolutely pack them into barns. I mean, loads and loads and loads, all in the same place, you know, and grow them really quickly. And sure, I mean, it's not going to be very nice for them, there's sensory deprivation, boredom and the rest of it, but they're not going to live for very long. And then, then what we're going to do is we herd them into a different factory and we stun them and we cut their throats and we skin them or we pluck them and then we chop their flesh up into chunks and we eat that. Yeah, you know, I've worked it out, we're only going to need to kill 75 billion a year. That's all, right? Okay. And then, even better, right? Check this. We can take this chemical from the fourth stomach of a calf, right? And mix it with milk from its own mother, right? Until it becomes this sort of wobbly mass of fat and protein. And then we inoculate that with bacteria and the bacteria digest it until it becomes this sort of hard, yellow, stinky stuff made of the excrements of those bacteria. Really, you can love this. I mean, it's, it's so tasty. We'll call it cheese. Yeah, okay, it's going to take quite a lot of the world's surface, 30 plus percent to keep all these animals. We'll enclose some of it and kill all the large predators and exclude the wild herbivores and cut down the trees so they can all eat grass. Or other parts of it, we'll grow crops, yeah. And we'll feed them with grain. And yeah, we'll need pesticides and herbicides and the rest of it. And yeah, I know, all the shit will go down the rivers and poison them and it'll poison the sea and the minerals will run off the land, cause a huge amount of climate breakdown. I mean, it could bring the living planet to an end. Okay, but it's going to be great. It's going to be delicious. You're going to love it. I hope you would run this scoundrel out of town. The opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily reflect those of this station's management, staff, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production hosted and produced by Joy LaClaire. You can hear past Forthright Radio by going to our website, forthright.media.